What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people? Welcome to another episode, yet the first edition of Jack Dapper Blues Podcast in video. <laughs> uh, before we get to our great guest today, as you know, I'm Lamont Jack Pearlie, the African-American folklorist. I want you to look at my shirt. Can you see it? I don't know if you can see it. There we go. Larry Griffith. Blues Calling My Name is the name of that particular single. It's, it's not a new song, but you still should follow it. Uh, find it. Uh, he's out of Georgia, and he's a great bluesman. Also, my wife is selling coffee and other um, supplemental and health uh, products. These coffees I drink, Skinny Brew and Keto Coffee. You can get it three for 20, or you can actually become one of her um, customers and get the whole pack. I'll leave the information in the description so you can contact her with interest, and she can explain it to you way better than I can. Now, on to the show, Blues People. Today, my guest is Adam Gussel. I want to read an excerpt that I took from the Amazon site where his book is being sold, one of the places his books are being sold. Now, Adam Gusso, as you all should know at this point, is a blues historian, a legendary blues musician, and played with, rest in peace, the legendary Satan from Satan and Adam. So we're gonna, we, we may get into that a little bit because uh, uh, Satan recently transcended, but we want to talk about this book because this book touches on uh, topics that is very prevalent in the blues community, the blues people community, as well as this platform. So let me just give you an excerpt of this uh, description on Amazon. Mamie Smith's path-breaking 1920 recording of Crazy Blues set the pop music world on fire, inaugurating a new African-American market for race records. Not long after... Such records also brought black blues performances to an expanding international audience. A century later, the mainstream blues world has transformed into a multicultural and transnational melting pot, taking the music far beyond the black southern world of its origins. But not everyone, everybody it says, is happy about that. If there's no black, no white, just the blues, as one familiar name suggests, why do some blues people hear such pronouncements as an aggressive attempt at cultural appropriation and an erasure of traumatic histories that lie deep in the heart of the music? Then again, if blues is black music, as some performers and critics insist, what should we make of the vibrant global blues scene with its all corners mix of nationalities and ethnicity? So we're talking about Adam Gusso's new and current book, which is out, Who's Blues? Mr. Gusso, how are you, sir? I am doing great. Thanks, uh, thanks, Lamont Jack, for having me on your show. I didn't realize, is this actually the first 
Um, it's the first video one you've done. Am I, am I your inaugural guest on that? You, you actually are. <laughs> Thank you, man. I, I appreciate your faith in me. We, uh, we've, we've, we've done the interview thing before with my last book, Beyond the Crossroads. Um, yeah, we, we, we actually, we, quite a few times, the last book, the documentary, we, we've been speaking. <laughs> it's true. So it's true. What, what I would like you to do before we go into this, because you mm -hmm. know I have questions, but I also sure. know that you're extremely smart and a tough guy, so you could take the hard questions. <laughs> and I've been thinking about what you might be getting ready to bust me on. So, I, yeah, we're going to have a good conversation. Uh, uh, give a description yeah. to the audience of the book and then um, share with us its inspiration. Okay. So one way to think about the, the book actually began um, with the title Blues Talk, Making Sense of the Music in a New Millennium. The publisher thought it needed a, a slightly sexier title. They ended up creating a title that is a little more combative in a sense. Uh, and I think makes some people, I, certainly makes white blues players and fans. I've had a lot of weird kind of uh, people saying like, you know, let's living dogs lie. Like, why are you, why are you bringing race into the blues? And I say, well, I'm not doing that. I'm actually just talking about what's there um, in the conversation. So what fascinated me was that it seemed like there was two ways in the contemporary moment that people were ideologizing the blues, that when people were talking in combative ways and circling ideas around the blues, they were doing it in two, in two ways. One was something that, that Corey Harris obviously put out there, but it, it's been around for a long time, which is the this, this statement, blues is black music. Corey Harris uh, published a blog starting in 2015 with that as the title, blues is black music, exclamation point. And so understanding that, that phrase, I wanted to look at that. I wanted to interrogate it, understand what it meant to the people who were using it. And then there's a second kind of, and I make clear at the beginning of my book, that more of the tr truth, significantly more of the truth is on the side of that slogan, let's say, than on the side of the other slogan. But there is, in fact, as we know, a competing slogan. And it's on T-shirts. It's one that I, I have problems with, but I also try to do what's called steel manning ideas, which is rather than straw manning, rather than finding the weakest way to understand them. I try to say, well, what how, if we're compassionate, what do people mean? So the second one is no black, no white, just the blues. You've certainly heard people say that. It, it probably pisses you off more than it pisses me off, but it pisses me off a little bit. <laughs> but I understand what people mean by it. And so one of the things that people mean by it is, at, at best, can't the contemporary blues scene be a place where we actually transcend all that Jim Crow crap, where we have, in effect, a version of what Martin Luther King called beloved community, where we have the true interrelatedness. And I can provide lots of evidence, that, including in my own life as a blues performer, that, that there's some truth in that. I, I was interested, though, is what happens if you actually try to have a conversation between the two? Now, the book is framed, and so one of the things was, like you, I consider myself somebody who's trying to minister to the blues world. And I, I love... That you've done that. You've gone far beyond in, in many ways than I have. But by the same token, I've got like 800 videos on YouTube. Back in 2011, I, I, I had just finished teaching Blues Lit at my university. And I thought, you know what? I've been teaching people how to play blues harmonica. That's one of the kinds of blues talk that I know how to do. It's kind of the mechanics 
of teaching this instrument. And I thought, why not? But people, the people that I'm teaching the instrument to, they're all around the world. So I have a kind of global audience. And those, the Asians and the South, Af the South Americans and the Europeans, if somebody were to say to them, blues is black music, they, not, they might actually not have a whole lot. They might have a few faces connecting, but not really understand culturally where that phrase is coming from. And I thought they may not sort of, so I wanted to take them back down south. So part of what I do in the book is try to introduce that cohort, call them the white blues fans and aficionados and players in need of a little cultural education. I try to introduce them to that. I'm doing what Malcolm X said you should do. Go into your own community and teach. That's one of the things I'm trying to do. Um, but I'm also trying to critically interrogate, and I, I, I'm giving you a long answer, so I'm trying to critically interrogate the blues is black music claims, trying to, uh, trying to uh, appreciate them, but also think about what the contemporary blues scene is and trying to understand the globalization. So I hope one thing we'll have a chance to do is talk about the way in which blues has been globalized. Oh, we, um, we definitely yeah. will, because um, in a documentary series that I have called Talking About the Blues With, um, ironically enough, I interviewed um, Guy Davis, and he oh, makes yeah. he makes a, a, a claim similar that it, it it has gone global, you know, and that mm -hmm. you know it, it would be if if we just kept it marginalized in our respective community, would it have um, blessed so many people in so many ways? However, in its globalization. Um, there's a moment of seeing one or two black faces in the audience or even participating, which, uh, as you know, many uh, black blues musicians discuss this. Now, before we get into those things, based on your answer, I have a couple of things to unpack here. Sure. The first one, and I'm looking to the side because I'm, I'm writing notes because I, I want to make sure I, I, I hit these topics. Why... Mm -hmm. Are you bringing race into the blues? Someone asked you, or oh, so people asked you. Um, more so, white mm -hmm. musicians than black musicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's something I would like us to unpack because just mm -hmm. like the statement, "No white, no black, just the blues." Do you feel both of those, removing race out of it and making that statement, even though your your definition of that statement? well thought out as it is, is the first time I heard it put that way. That could make sense, right? It's something that brings mm -hmm. people together and experience shared. But, but mm -hmm. outside of that answer, do you believe removing race from the blues or cultural experience for a particular race and that statement, no white, no black, just blues, does that omit not only um, its beginnings and early years, but the black or blues people experience of present day. Well, yeah. And by the way, I want to, uh, it's important actually, because the phrase is no black, no white, just the blues. And one of the things I say is whoever invented it, like it's so clueless that you would start with no black, you're going to erase that. What's, what, what's, um, what's interesting about that statement. So yes, I, the answer is, um, I, yeah. It, and 
you're erasing historical experience. And certainly I can't, I can't fault any African-American blues invested person from hearing that and saying, why would you like, what does that mean? That, that it is a kind of erasure. It's, it's a version of erasure that I suppose we get when people use the term colorblind or say, I don't see color. And they mean it for the best reasons. I, uh, in most cases, I think, but I don't see how you talk about the blues without talking about black history. And let me, let me say something that I didn't really talk about it quite as much in the book, but it's extremely important. Just last night, I had a seminar here at the University of Mississippi, and we, we did a, a, a performance novel, you might call it, by a, a writer, an African-American um, woman um, named Sharon Bridgeforth. It's called Love Conjure Blues. It's an extraordinary work. And what it does is what many, many black writers do when they treat blues themes. Sterling Plump is an excellent example. I'd recommend your listeners go to Mississippi Griot, which is one of his poems, which is blues' history. Uh, And one key meaning of the blues, obviously, is the sort of legacy of survival under incredibly adverse, exploitative circumstances. And so... One of the things I hope I'll, I'll do with my book is sort of introduce white blues fans who may not have actually thought about that to that idea. The idea that even even a, so 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 B.B. King becomes actually a crucially important person for me. And he's that interesting because his experience speaks to both sides of this thing. B.B. King in 1968, it's the moment when he's actually crossing over. In 64, he's still playing for black audiences. By 68, he has what he calls maybe the best performance of my life, and it was for an all-white hippie flower child crowd at Fillmore West in 68. And he's really happy and he cries and he says, I played and we were so tight and right, that white audience and me. But in 68, he's also being interviewed and he talks about what the, where his blues come from. And for me, this was something that I discovered 20 years ago and it just set me back on my heels. It got me to write the chapters in an earlier book of mine that are about lynching in the blues, that are about, you know, the ultimate sort of uh, racial trial and, and, and insult and violence. Um, and what B.B. King says is, you know, where I come from back in down in Mississippi, so many black people were killed in so many different ways that you actually would be a- afraid, he said. And then you get to thinking about that later on, and it, it, it's in the back of your mind, and it really bothers you. And he said, and so that's where my blues come from. <laughs> he said, the next most important thing after that is your woman. Now, I know I, if you took 99 out of 100 white blues fans and you said, you know, there's a connection between racial violence and the blues, I, they'd, they'd go, well, no, blues is, it's about B.B. King singing, you know, you upset me, baby, or, or, or it's my own fault, baby. It's about a, a blues person singing to their woman. And I get that because that is one of the universals. We all find love and lose love and it hurts. But what King is saying is that underneath that is a whole other level that for him as a Mississippi blues performer. Now, what's interesting is you asked me something important though, which is what about today? And I'm fascinated. I try to touch on this, but I think we're in the last seven to seven to five to seven years. And I'd, I'd love to know what you think about this. It feels like there's a new investment among black players in the music. There's a young, there are younger generations. There's Marquise Knox. There's, and, and a bunch of other, and, and of course, Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram, and John Tavius Willis, Quan Willis, 
just to, to name three people, uh, Andrew Ali. These are all people who I mentioned in the book, who I saw play. The first three I saw play together, and it was in a, I write about it towards the end. And I think it's almost like in the in what I call the, the post-Trayvon Martin period, this, this period in which we suddenly turned a corner and realized we're not in a post-racial world at all. The Obama thing, it, Obama did not get us there. He it tried. I voted for him. I wanted that to happen. But he brought out all of the residual nastiness in white America. And I feel like maybe there's something in the blues that is one place that people can go to feel that, to speak that. And, and I'd love to know how you feel about that. But um, but yes, we can talk about the way in which contemporary living, younger and middle-aged and older blues players are sort of sidelined by the, the sort of mass white blues audience. I do think that there's a, that's a real problem in some ways. And, we, and I don't talk about that as much, but I think we should talk about that. Um, you know, the people who say, let's keep the blues alive, the white fan who says, I got to keep the blues alive. It's like, well, it still is. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I definitely see. Here's the thing. So, and this is where what stems this question: Why are you bringing race into the blues? Because when when we speak about the blues, at least for me, we're not just speaking about the the musical expression transmission. We, we're speaking about the culture, the experience and the heritage of a, a particular people. And when, when, when you brought up post uh, Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown and things of these natures, it, it actually fully reflects. I've just lost your, your audio. The things that are going on with those legends that we revere so much um, we're experiencing. So I, I kind of mm -hmm. believe that it was always there. Um, it's never left. I, I believe that commercially it's in, in regards to business and profit, mm -hmm. It's been adjust, uh, hijacked, adjusted to make most people believe that there's not people down on the ground level that that's still uh, living the blues culture as well as performing the music. I, obviously, mm -hmm. music of of all ethnicities and 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 nationalities and cultures, their their most popular evolution per generation becomes uh, commercialized. That's, that's the business <laughs> and the nature of the beast. However, there's still, I don't want to say small pockets, but there's still those. And I, I think because of where we are right now, um, the last, man, since Obama up until this point, the, the blues has taken on the space that black spirituals took on in, in the late fifties through the mm -hmm. early seventies, right? Because it, to your point, the connection of, of how to transmit a cry or, or, mm -hmm. or a, a revolutionary statement or, or just trying to be now with, with, with all this being said, let's, let's, get into the book 
a little bit in regards to um, some of the the, the examples and uh, what direction were you going in? And and you mentioned in your description of the book, the inspiration was trying to to bring to the new or, or latest. Uh, community of blues aficionados, uh, uh, enthusiasts, and the like, where this comes from. So, better yet, that's a better question. What did you notice in these new spaces outside of, I don't think they understand, but what, what were some of the things that gave you that um, um, feeling that they don't understand or wouldn't understand where this comes from? I think that's where we should start. Well, one thing is the I, I'm I'm surprised in some ways and in some ways not surprised, but I'm I'm surprised by the the anxiety that specifically um, you know white people with investments in the blues have at the very title of my book, um, and you know I was when I was a graduate student I was I was basically an African American lit guy, so I was trained to sort of look at these look at texts and think in terms of culture um but let me there's something one of the things i try to do is help people think about history and there's more than one kind of history that uh, of the blues so if we actually look at the blues as music and and again and and i'll I'll absolutely willing to sort of say you're right blues is more than just musical expression but it is musical expression that's going around the world so what one one important thing to understand is the ideas that have s- surrounded it since the beginning. And, and it has a long and sort of tortuous history, and something important happens during the 1960s that I think we're still trying to figure out. Um, and so until about 1960, between 1920 and 1960, blues was black popular music. It was a, 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 with sort of rhythm and blues transformations, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, what's his name, the, the small... Ain't nobody here but us chickens. What was his name? Caledonia. Um, I'm thinking about the sax player. Uh, who oh, I'm sax just player. I thought you was th- talking about James Brown or Little Richard. Um, yeah, no, I'm thinking about um, Louis, Louis Jordan. I'm sorry, yes. Louis Jordan. My, I, so, I should have known that. That's my grandmother's rest in peace. She, that was her guy. <laughs> wow. Well, I and mean, he's an interesting example because his blues, we can talk about traumatic histories. And I, and I talk about Sugar Blue and his, his thoughts about that. Um, and they certainly show up in the music, in, 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 in the excuse me, in the literature. But of course, blues is many kinds of music, and so um, uh, Louis Jordan, you know, does some comic stuff. Although "Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens" is also an address to the cops who come to break up a house party, right? It's, signifi- it's signifying address. I try to help people see those sorts of things. But let's say till 1960, it's black popular music. And then we have the civil rights movement that's incoming after Brown versus Ford of Ed in 54 and all the stuff that's happening. And you have a younger generation, younger African-American generation that begins to reject the blues that goes for soul music. I was intrigued. I'm teaching a course right now on Freedom Summer, the summer that all the white volunteers came down to Mississippi in 64 to try to break segregation here. And what they were all listening to, black and white, in in the Freedom Houses was soul music. They weren't really listening to blues. They were listening to soul and B.B. King talks about this, about the fact that he's losing his black youth audience. 
And if we want to have an honest conversation, we need to understand. Sometimes I've heard people say, white people didn't steal the blues, we gave it away. What happens in the 60s is there's a really interesting kind of tension. The black youth audience is disappearing, even though an older audience still loves B.B., and there's an audience down south that never goes away for the blues. It's still here today in the soul blues scene. And then you have this huge kind of emergent white audience, along with a certain number of white players like Paul Butterfield and, and Mike Bloomfield, the Butterfield Blues Band. And then, of course, the British guys in 65. So by the time you get to 68, B.B. King sees you can cross over. You can cross over. And what I'm fascinated by is the tension within black, the black intelligentsia with Ron Karenga, the, the, the founder of Kwanzaa, saying the blues are invalid. So there was a way in which it was understood at that particular historical moment, there was a rejection of the blues among certain people. And I, talk, and I talk about that in one of the chapters of the book, chapter 10, I think. By the same token, I think all blues lovers should pay a lot more attention to Larry Neal. And a remarkable, he has a number of remarkable essays, but any day now, black art and black liberation, where he... He's famous where he famously says that we're after the destruction of the white thing. You know, guys like guys like me telling us what the music means. And then he says, you know, the blues is 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 his history, it's survival. He go, takes the blues god and goes all the way back to Africa and says it's been brought forward. He's the one, I think, who decisively pushes back on Ron Karenga. But it's also true, and you talked about contemporary black blues artists, that the black youth audience remains gone in some way. And I think that's one of the tensions in our scene, which means, and it has, it's what was going on when, when, and I took, begin the book by talking about that panel in 2012 at the, at Dominican university, the panel sort of on the, the state of the blues today, because what we have is a scene in which for better or worse, partly because of blue societies and the fact that white people started these blue societies and they were always, a few black folks who were part of them. In some cases, we we're now starting to get stories about white folks who've actually aggressively acted against the few black people who wanted to be members. So there are real problems, which I try to unearth, but we have a kind of near hegemony, a near, a kind of not total domination, definitely not. But in the mainstream blue scene, we have white folks, although that's changing but we have white folks sort of controlling the organizations, controlling the blue societies, dominating the voting for the awards. And this creates problems. And I, one of the problems I talk about is the, something I know really well, something that I know pisses off Sugar Blue and Billy Branch, which is the Blues Music Award for Instrumental Player of the Year Harmonica, which for the past 26 years, no African-American player has won. Billy Branch hasn't won it. Uh, Sugar Blue hasn't won it. These men are at the absolute top of the game. Is somebody intentionally not voting for them? Maybe they're not playing the blues cruises that the rich folks are organizing. So maybe they're not as well known in some circles, but it just doesn't make sense. And, and that's why I focus on the Just Blues Music Society, which I think is a really important that white blues fans who think the, at the Blues Music Awards and the, blue, and, and the Blues Music Association is the be all and end all need to know there's actually a, a black run organization that's giving its own awards. And I, I was, I went to their award ceremony and saw some incredible music and, and including um, somebody that I wanted everybody to, to pay attention to um, whose picture, whose photo is in the book, Cheryl Youngblood, 
um, who's, somebody who's not known, sorry, I'm a little reversed here, not known on the, on the American blues scene. She's well known in Chicago. Um, so this is where you're doing crucial work, Lamont Jack. You are doing crucial work in, in just bringing the stories and the players and, and, and the ideas to people. Um, that's sort of what I'm trying to do. So anybody, I'll say one more thing, and you're, you're very nice to let me give a long answer. Anybody who comes from the blues is black music approach will find a lot to like in my book. A lot of, uh, and at the end, when we talk about the contemporary scene, I mean, I highlight some of those things, but straight through, uh, I'm making a, what I think is a pretty good argument for what everybody should know about the music if they don't. And I, again, I'm speaking partly to that white cohort that thinks they don't need to think about race. It's like, no, you need to know a whole lot of stuff. You need to know about call and response and, and it's African origins. You need and in drum talk. You need to, there's like a whole lot of things that I'm trying to help people understand. But anyway, sorry for, for going on so long. No, 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 no. That's okay. Because it, it yeah. leads to another question mm -hmm. based on everything you just said. I, I want to unpack and, and not just what you said, but I, I first met you at, a New York blues, I think it was International Blues Day. Um, oh, it was, it, right. This was many years ago. It was put on by a white organization, but, you know, the, the musicians was just the top-notch musicians either of the area or who had played in that area at one point in time. Um, yeah, I so, remember that. Right. So it wasn't necessarily... I, I, I would not say it fits into one of the um, situations where it, it's a white-run organization and just only white uh, musicians on the stage. It definitely wasn't that. It was just the, 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 the highest of musicians at that point in time, um, at least in that, in, in, that were able to come. But the point I, I, I'm making is, I understand you, you, you're on the scene and you've been on this scene for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, I guess this is more economical and political question in regards to the blues mm -hmm. um, than necessarily the book, but I believe the book addresses this. Do you believe, based on what you've seen and what you just shared with us, that the omission of black blues for a, a, a lack of better term is is prevalent because that would adjust several things the, the 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 economy of these organizations the control of these organizations the fact that um you know the the, the narrative that's been um rephrased and replaced, you know, everything that comes mm -hmm. with a high-powered coup, not to make it sound so dramatic and villainous, but that it's, it's kind of intentional that we, we don't want to talk about that because I, I spoke to, um, man, I can't think of his name. He's out of Chicago and I feel horrible. I can't think of his name. I think it's Chicago, Chicago Bo. Chicago Bo, and I mentioned him. He actually shows up briefly in the in the beginning of the book because he was on that panel that I write about. Yeah. Okay, good. Because what, what he what he what he shared with me was that he he started a coalition in in Chicago, uh, maybe the eighties or nineties, 
uh, for black musicians because they saw how the venues and promoters were beginning to marginalize them out of the way to make room for whatever it was they were trying to do that did not incorporate uh, black blues musicians, as well as he had a song about uh, the connection of Africa and Africa, African spirituality with the blues, and they were, hey, man, I don't think, you know, we, we shouldn't be talking about that. And so what ends up happening is these mm. venues and promoters were almost like, it, it, it was really in the same vein as, as Sam mm. Cook where these promoters and these venues were telling other black blues musicians, if you align yourself with Chicago Bo and what he's doing, you won't be working in, in these towns. Mm. What, what's your thoughts on that? And do you address that in the book? Uh, I, it's interesting. I don't address that, that specific thing. What I, I do, I have a, a list. Let me, it's probably worth, um, it's probably worth, it probably worth reading the particular thing that I, that I, that I quote, um, which was, um, I talk about the, the plenary session and I said that it was a, an aggrieved indictment. So this is a, at Dominican university. It's in May of t 2012. Um, an, an aggrieved indictment of the contemporary blues scene on racial grounds. And this is on page five in the book. The 10 panelists, six black and four white, described a wide range of offenses, many of them centered on the idea that so-called heritage blues musicians, which is to say black blues performers, had been displaced by white blues performers from blues festivals, from club gigs, from the Grammys and the Blues Music Awards. Even the BMAs themselves, formerly the W.C. Handy Awards, had been renamed in a way that erased their black namesake W.C. Handy. The charges rained down. Singer Sharon Lewis, Texas native, and longtime Chicagoan complained about, quote, talent buyers, festival promoters, club owners who continue to overlook us as females because we don't play amplified guitars, close quote. A veiled reference to Samantha Fish, Sue Foley, Anna Popovich, and other white female singer guitarists in tight-fitting dresses who were and are popular festival attractions. There were complaints about white blues fans who patronized and disrespected older black blues players, about white blues singers who used black dialect, uh, about blue societies run by whites that actively tried to limit African-American participation, about black performers being given less stage time than white artists at the Blues Music Award show, and, and, and I, it, it goes on, a few more things. Um, what's interesting to me, so there's some, I'm, I'm, I have no reason to doubt that Chicago Bo is right that there are club owners, and I suspect that most of the club owners in Chicago are white, they, Italian or Jewish, um, I, I no no reason to doubt that, um, and that they may not want to hear something political. They may not want to hear Shamika Copeland with her new song. For all I know, I, I, but I I also know there's a book called Blue Chicago by a sociologist David Grazian, um, in which you have white Chicago blues musicians saying, you know, they won't book me. <laughs> um, that you know the clubs want black players. But I suspect that there's actually a way of finding common ground here, which is that the clubs may want black entertainment. Um, I know that, the, that, that clubs don't want too many Asian players because I'm just about to publish a, 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 an issue of a journal with a long essay that is the, sort of the confessions of 
um, Billy Branch's uh, uh, piano player, who's a, a guy from Japan. He's been there for, for 30 years. He's been in Chicago. And he talks about how promoters in Europe don't want two Japanese. If they're bringing a Chicago blues band, it's got to be a black band. So I, and they don't want two Japanese guys in the press photo, which has hurt this player. So that's one of the paradoxes that, I, that I'm addressing. But I think Chicago Boa, he's surely right that there's a problem there. Now, here's a paradox. When Chicago Bo goes to Europe, he's happy to be backed up by the white musicians who are there, the European guys. Um, I, I, I find, you know, because he, tra he travels alone. I just, I went and found a lot of videos of him doing that. And I think that's a paradox in some way. I wonder if it might be easier, and, I, and I'll, I'll ask you this, but I, but I, and I'd have you ask other African-American players, it, when they tour, when when Billy Branch tours in, in South America, for example, and is backed up by, you know, bands of all Brazilian guys. Um, is there sort of less tension there than there is in America? I, I mean, when, when black players go overseas, they're happy to have kind of that beloved community. I wonder if it's, it's easier in some ways, whether the American, the white American guys are because we're sort of all fighting for the same gigs. I mean, I think that, I'm not, I'm not in it now, but I'm saying, I do think that there's almost a Marxist analysis that could be made. It has to do with the work, potentially the shrinking work market and who's getting the gigs. And I cannot blame Sugar Blue or Billy Branch for looking at a festival that I found in Canada that they critiqued, the Blues Coalition critiqued. They said it was a real problem um, where you had like six harp players, all white guys from America, nobody from Chicago was brought in, you know, none of the black players. So the, or the Alabama, old, right? Because we have know. Jock Webb who, who should him. be on that list. I don't know him actually. Jock Webb. Yes. Jock Webb senior. I have to introduce you guys. Oh man, he's, yeah. he, he's done, a, he's done a lot of things at Ole Miss too. Uh, and I believe with Scott Beretta, I'll introduce you two guys, okay. but okay. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I do want to say that to your point, one of the things about, uh, musicians traveling without a band is just economically sound, right? Because, yeah. you, you know, the, the money is not there like it was many, many years ago. Also, I will say, historically, and we see this with Josephine Baker, we see this with Charlie Patton in um, his song Down the Dirt Road Blues. We see this with Robert John. We can go down the list. Just blues, but not even talking about jazz and um, our our literature goggins uh, like James Baldwin, that there, there's this different um, uh, frequency overseas when it comes... Matter of fact, we I've spoken to, to uh, uh, rappers... Right, like that are that are like neck deep in hip hop since we was kids, and mm. they even said this within the last 10 15 years and even more recent. There's a different appreciation for the mm. creation of, of black transmission over there and the creator of these transmissions and, and, and expressions. We're here, um, and I and, and I think I could quote Corey Harris in the interview we've uh, he and I conducted some mm -hmm. years ago after I, I read the, the the article that you spoke about when we first started. Um, black folk here were not just a, a, a commodity, but but 
whatever we created was owned by the other. So when you when you look at um the Color of My World, I believe the name is the book. It's a children's book by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I hope I'm not tearing the name of this book up. And, and I bring this book up often because it's it's remarkably, it's, it's amazing that mm-hmm. so much pertinent information is in a children's book, but it's 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 developed and 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 presented in such a, 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 a way that everyone can understand. So it goes through... What what happens is these little kids want to go outside and no, you got to stay and help Mister Such and Such, who's a handyman coming over to the house to fix up different things in the house. And what happens is to keep the children's attention, he everywhere he goes in the house to to fix, replace, or what have you, he's introducing them to everyday things they use that was invented by an mm. African-American, a, a, a black person, that they don't own trademarks. It was owned by other people. In some cases, to get their freedom, they had to come up with these inventions that they mm. didn't have a chance to own. And so I bring this up because it's similar to what Corey Harris said in the interview. The, the, the concept of whatever is made by this particular group of people, uh, African-American, black American, black Indian, whatever the terms or identifications are, it is this idea that whatever comes from this group of people is owned by those of of the white class. So it's just almost a given. Okay, yes, you you created blues, but, you know, it belongs to us. (laughs) Have you, what what is your thoughts on that based on what we're discussing? And, and, how well, and also please incorporate your yeah. answer with the book as well. So I'm going to give you a, a, a couple of thoughts. Let me see if I can give a, a couple of thoughts. Um, so one of them is in the in the book when I talk when I go to the Just Blues Music Awards. Um, Lonnie Lonnie Brooks' uh, son uh, Ronnie Baker Brooks uh, was there, and he talked about how important it was that black artists. He would say any blues artist, but but black artists in particular, kind of own their own music, own their own publishing. You know, set up a publishing company with BMI or ASCAP, and own your masters. And I I think that's really important. I think I think everybody should do that. Uh, I'll be honest. I the one time I, I self produced an album back in 2010, and it 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 did well enough. I mean, I own my own masters. I put in the money. It did well enough that a, that an English uh, record label owner said he thought he could make me a star in England. You know, it, that's seductive, right? People sweet talk you. And so I gave him a two-year, um, I licensed it for two years. And by God, you know, a year went by and he wouldn't give me a single statement on it. And ultimately he, when I, I finally wow. got, and ultimately I finally forced the issue. I, and I made such a pain in the ass out of myself. First of all, he finally let me go early. <laughs> he finally voided the contract early. But when he finally gave me a statement, what it showed is that the album had earned out in nine months. And I, I had money due to me from him. And what it said is, uh, when he gave me the statements, it said that I, I, I was my responsibility. It was they were not going to pay me unless I invoiced them for what I was owed. But he wouldn't give me statements so that I could invoice it until I finally... What I would say is we all have our, our story of, of when you lose control of your music. You know, I yanked it back. Now I own it. 
I'm making my whatever, 30 or $40 a month, you know, on CD baby from that album. I mean, I make it still making a little bit and I own it. So let me, but Ronnie Baker Brooks said, you got to own your own music. So here's how I conduct my business dealings. Sterling McGee, Mr. Satan, the guy that I played with for 30 years, there's a documentary called Satan and Adam. And there, thank you for the photo. So there we are. That was back in downtown New York, actually, not in Harlem. If you, if you look at the sign, it says like 60 West Broadway or, or Lafayette. It was way downtown, but that's him. There's a documentary called Satan and Adam. And his nephew, Rod Patterson, who is a, uh, uh, is a, he's a dancer and a singer and does a whole bunch of different things and an album designer, um, his nephew contacted me, emailed me and said, why don't we, why don't we make a demo? And why don't we put together a little tribute show? I can sing my uncle's songs. Well, we ended up getting together and it worked so well that we recorded a whole album. And you know what? The way we do business is, I, and I told him, I said, this is how I think we ought to do it. I said, is that we split it 50-50. And we split, that's our investment. We own it. We own the master's. I told him how to register at BMI, how to do sound, sound exchange. I kind of mentored him. He actually asked, he, he wanted some mentoring on that particular element of things. Um, so one way to get past the legacies of exploitation, and this would be one of the themes of my book, that beloved community theme, is, is equity, is, is to find equitable ways. Um, and we've, we've become, we're not just sort of band partners, but we've become Friends, we talk, we talk frequently. Um, I'll give you a second example. Back in 2010, and I, I write about starting this event, starting an event here in North Mississippi called Hill Country Harmonica. I had never been a promoter. I, I had a buddy. We kind of were promoters. We made a little money the first year. The second year, we had 130 people. We made, we made some actual money. We paid everybody. We gave everybody tips beyond what we they were commissioned to pay them, sort of give extra. The third year, we didn't make money. We kind of broke even. And then Annette Hollowell, who's the daughter of the family who owns the horse farm where the event took place. It's a black owned horse farm. She's very proud of the fact that her grandfather has, that the land's been in the family for a hundred years in Mississippi. I can't tell you how singular that is. It's not entirely unknown, but it's unusual. Um, she wanted to renovate the event. I wasn't sure I could make money at it, but ultimately we did it once together. And then I said, you, you know what? I, the event should be there. One of the founding principles of the event was to prioritize African-American artists, deep South artists, local artists, people who were a little under the radar. I said, I know you know what the event's about and I, I'm, I'm just going to give it to you. And so I just gave it to her. No 5% royalty due. No, I kept no... I created something and gave it away. I think I'm not, I don't want great praise for it, but what I'm saying is that's one way that one can consciously um, ameliorate just the do the very bare beginnings of ameliorating some of the, I want to use a bad word, but the bad stuff that's happened over the years, the long histories of that we, that we, that we, we both know about. Um, there's a guy named Gerald Horn, an extraordinary um, black historian has a book about the jazz scene it's a big thick book about exploitation the way that black artists from the beginning of jazz were exploited i don't remember the title but i've got it on my desk at home 
Yeah, so I, I have it on my shelf. If I could see that for, I what's think it's it called? called Jazz Something Justice. I'm yeah. looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it may be called Jazz and Justice, something like that. Yes. Um, I can yeah. only see, you know, I'm at that age. I can only see the big letters this far. <laughs> and I can only see when I look down, if I'm going to look at the camera, I have to look down my nose because my damn bifocals. Um, so thank you for the, for the question. That, that, that's a long answer, and you've been very nice about letting me give long answers. But that, that's how I see it. Well, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, you know, thank you. And, and I'm not stuck, but... It, you know, this goes back to, um, that was like, that's in, individually because you have an earnest respect for many things, you know, because we've had the, uh, the opportunity to speak. You have mm. respect for many things. Um, as a collective, I guess you're, you're, you're if I may, mm -hmm. suggesting that as a collective, uh, these organizations should pretty much operate in the same vein rather than trying to exploit uh, the people and, and their expression. Now, you know, when we speak about equity, and I mean, I, I remember I don't, uh, some time ago this conversation came up. I think it was on one of the uh, blues group uh scenes on on Facebook and my response was how Lightning Hopkins was given two thousand dollars but the family who owned the rights is still being paid today. Someone responded to me and said well but that's how Lightning was. He didn't want all that other stuff. He just wanted his stuff up front. And it was a, it was a white person who responded to me who mm -hmm. said that. And I, to me, therein lies the issue, right? Because if you're doing business with someone... now. Obviously, if you explain to them the difference between just taking this cash right now and, and you know, working to own it so mm -hmm. you'll be good and your grandchildren will be good and they're like, forget it, forget it, I don't want to hear that. That's, that's different. If you, but but I, I don't think in many situations those conversations were had outside of the Howlin' Wolves and the Ray Charles and people like that of the world. And I, I would like to bring it back to current, to modern day. Yeah. Because one of the things that we find, and I and I believe you would agree, but I would like you to, to, to let me know. A lot of people, black, white, everybody, like to hold up our legends who have transcended and the things that happened to them for the most part, in most people's minds, are long gone. However, there are those that are still here right now. And I believe uh, it doesn't... If, if you address or acknowledge or highlight the black blues musicians of modern day that are addressing blues people issues, not just playing, but addressing blues people issues, I, I, do you believe that 
then it would force people to have these uncomfortable uh, conversations or even do something even more terrible and actually acknowledge that, hey, if I, if, if, if I can get an understanding of you and you can get an understanding of me, maybe we can get along. Well, I, I think without having an honest conversation, you can't learn something new, and I, and which is one reason why I was very ultimately grateful, even though I was upset by that panel, I was ultimately grateful um, at the that that sort of awakening. It's like you know, I didn't know, I didn't know about that that people had all those feelings. So it's actually good that they're on the table. I mean, I would just say let's start with start with that. Um, I again, I I. I completely agree that um, the sort of those royalty issues should should be resolved. I don't think this is where I might differ with from you. I don't think that the simple fact that the that blue societies happen to have a whole lot more white people than black people is is something that white the, the white people have to apologize for. I think the problem is if the white people who are in because after all, that's who was interested in the music. What they have for a while, but here's the sort of thing I've heard about. Somebody comes, uh, uh, a black person comes and says, "I want to be part of your blue society." And you know what? When you do your annual event, I'd love to have a little bit of black history as a part of that, not just blues history, but a little bit more sort of connected with the. And we, if you have a certain kind of white blues fan, go, "Oh, no, it's politics," and that's what that's where you and I, I think, would absolutely agree. No, it's not. It's actually entirely reasonable. Blues has use value. Again, I know you and I might disagree on this point. Blues has use value for so many different groups of people around the world. Um, I'm fascinated by a, a, a South Korean YouTuber named Luna Lee who takes Elmore James's like Dust My Broom and does it on the Diagum, the, the, the sort of zither instrument that's her national instrument. It's haunting. It's weird. And, and, and so there's that sound. But I think we can somehow I'd like to try to bring that all together. You're talking about sort of specific issues that are important issues um, that contemporary African-American players have issue, issues of equity, issues of control. Um, I don't I'm not. So I would not say that every blue society ought to just say, you know what, here, <laughs> like. I mean, I'd like to try to find a way to work together. In my case with, with Annette, I gave the event away because I wasn't sure I could make a profit at it, and I knew it was in really good hands. And, and also, my interests had turned a little bit. I wasn't quite as invested in making an event happen. You know, so I, I'm, I'm a believer in complex, always this and this. Um, I don't know if that's satisfying for you, but I, I, I do try to heighten the paradoxes a little bit in no, my no, book. No. It, it, it's satisfying, and just to be clear, you know, my my thing is just it's not that it doesn't represent or can be utilized for others struggles happiness because it's not just downtrodden happiness celebration or whatever that's not what i'm saying i i am saying that in the midst of all of this don't negate and omit those of the legacy that are still practicing it uh, expressive-wise and actually living it. I mean, we see all the injustices and some of the things, you know, again, blues is not necessarily just downtrodden and, and, and back porch. It, it's also celebratory, right? Perhaps I had that same word in my head, so I'm glad you said that. It is. 
Right. That's part of its power because people, the people who created it needed a powerful release, a powerful coming back to yourself and owning yourself. I use that term self-presencing, you know, a song like Hoochie Coochie Man, which now my students at Ole Miss may titter when they hear that, the, the song, um, you know, but, but Hoochie Coochie Man is like, everybody knows I'm him or everybody knows I'm here. You know, there's a way in which blues creates very powerful personalities. Um, could I, so I, I'd like to ask you a question if I might, you've, you've asked me questions. I'd love to ask you a question. Please. Um, what would you, if you could have it become, if you could have the blue scene transform in a way that felt to you like, yeah, like in retrospect, five years later, you'd look back and go, I'm glad we, we got that to happen. What would, what would that world look like for you? I don't have an answer, but I'm wondering, or, 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 or what, a thing or two that might characterize it. What would, what would it look like or feel like? Um, that's uh, a hard, convoluted, and very loaded question. <laughs> but the, the one thing I will say is that acoustic blues, country blues, um, what's considered pre-war blues and things of this nature would not be looked at as a relic or a novelty right i i would like that to to be front and center like electric blues front and center like like even though i'm not a fan of shredding but you know i, I would like that to, to to be side by side with chicago blues even though in its own way chicago blues is treated like a novelty and a relic Right, I, mm. I would like to take that stigma off blues altogether, um, and and see whether it's an award, a festival, or a concert. See these different styles of expression of blues highlighted mm. and on a main stage. That probably would be the first and foremost because um, being an acoustic blues guy myself. Speaking to um, a lot, you know, Piedmont blues uh, and people who who I, I go to for whether it's an encouragement, um, different uh, tips, and, and and or even just uh, doing a, a presentation or performance, they've all shared with me that in a lot of cases, not only just black blues, but Acoustic blues is never on the main stage. It's somewhere on the side or in the back room. Yeah. You know, the way, honestly, people treat their grandparents. And I would like to see grandparents treated better too. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that would be great for me, first and foremost. Because you can't have one without the other. And they're all just as important. And, and they're not, even though in a commercial sense, the way it's perpetuated, as a novelty, mm. but it's actually great music, and there are there are more than uh, 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 cult audiences that listen to it. That that would be something that would make me uh, extremely uh, happy to see that to see acoustic mm. blues being, especially in the southern soul market, right. Oh, there's none of it there in the Southern Soul market. That would be an, yeah, it would be an interesting thing. 
Right, because because I'm familiar with Just Blues, and I really like what I believe his name is Charles is doing, and I love all yeah. the artists, but I, I would like to see just down home, back mm. poach, acoustic blues celebrated as well, which leads me to my next question, because you made mm. mention about the, 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 the 60s, and I would go as far as saying even before then, um, during the many migrations from the turn of the century, uh, at least the, the, the beginning of full assimilation, because the 1800s was different, but I, I would say the 1920s to, to the 60s, that, that idea of African Americans having to turn away, uh, black folk having to turn away from what was called backwood, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and not even in a, in a religious sense, but just not identifying with something that could either get them killed, arrested, or whatever bad taste that was left in their mouth from the South. So I, I would like to ask you, yeah, because it was said to me by a couple of black people, and it really hurt my feelings, uh, not as a put down or an insult, but more as I was sad of the, 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 the misinformation on all sides of this narrative that, you know, a, a, black, a few black people said, why are you playing this slave music? Why are you representing this slave music? You know, mm-hmm. I, I was at a, a event at a black establishment and a, a, a very good um, African-American blues acoustic uh, a, a team was playing and the person introducing them said they're playing music f- from Roots. Oh man. Exactly. So do you get that? Do you see that your students, do they understand that this is a free music and not a slave music? Ah, that's a really, that's one of the things that I write about in the, in the book is I, is the way that there's actually different, even within what I'll call the African-American intelligentsia, call sugar blue on the one hand, somebody who says sort of, the blues were born the moment the first, um, you know, African set foot on American soil in 1619, somebody who wants to trace the blues back to slavery. And there is a train of thought that sort of says, John Lee Hooker, it's not what happened to you. It's what happened to your parents and your grandparents and the people before them. All of that's in the music. And then there's Angela Davis and Kalamu Ya Salam and James Cone. And I actually, all three sort of very important black blues Critics, if you will, commentators. And I'm, a, on- I'm a big fan of James Cone's ideology and theology. Yeah, Cone. Uh, you know, Cone was a it was a black nationalist reading of the spirits from the spirituals to the blues. But all of them say that there's something different about the blues and that it reflects the transformed conditions that black folk were in once they had been emancipated. Salam says basically, he says, didn't know Africans have the blues. We didn't get the blues. He says until you know we were freed quote unquote but then you know there's it's sort of there's all that violence around us there's all of that um you just wanted for your labor power um you're just and you could be rubbed out uh, angela davis says travel and sexuality show up in the blues because those are ways people felt free you could you could be with who you wanted to be with instead of the master deciding that and you could travel Matt, you didn't have to have papers you could get on the road and go and i think those are really interesting. Uh, again, I think that um, 
your average sort of white blues player or aficionado doesn't really think in terms of those, to me, are key core concepts that help make the music more understandable. Um, who doesn't know that the blues often begin by somebody saying, I'm going? But why would that be? Why is that there? You know, if you want to say, what do you mean? Right? We don't talk about race and blues. But how many times have you heard? I'm going to Chicago. I'm southbound. Going to New York. Going to Kansas City. Why do you think that was so important for black people to go? You know, what are you getting away from? <laughs> right. But but what's interesting? You're highlighting something else, which is that at the same time, you know, that go I'm going was part of that great black migration, and it is true. Leroy Jones in '63 with blues people talked about the South, where I am now. In, I'm in North Mississippi. He talked about the South as the scene of the crime. And there were a lot of people in the 60s, I'm talking about young, younger black people, who did hear the blues as that kind of, that down South, backwards. We're in a different moment now. And I think you and I would both agree. We're, we're in a moment where, I mean, for me, the, tra the transformation happened when, uh, it's going to sound strange, it's a big jump cut, when Wynton Marsalis was made the head of jazz at Lincoln Center. Because Leroy Jones said, you know, the, the way that jazz has progressed, he actually said it in the following terms, sort of like it's, it represents sort of how the black man saw himself relative to America. And it was always, white, the white boys are, are, are learning how to play a swing, so we're going to go in and create bebop. They know how to play bebop, we're going to go and create cool. Chet Baker plays cool, we're going to do the funky thing and bring the church back in, the white boys can't follow us. But what, what Jones mi missed, I think, is like at the end of that process or at some point, what happens when the black trumpet player gets control of the cultural institution? That was a huge moment. It, I thought, you know, this is like now you can afford to go back and reclaim and, and decide and determine, you know, what's going to happen with all that stuff that you might have been running away from, those old sounds. Now you can go back and say those old sounds are deep sounds. And I think that's where you're coming from. They're deep sounds. They're nothing to, that has to be run away from or, or dissed. They're, they're American cultural history. And, they're, and, they're, and Europe knows that. The Europeans all know that. They love, right? Yeah, they get it. Well, you know, and, and, and that's the thing, twofold. It is an American sound. However you slice it, the blues is the most American transmission to ever hit the frequency of the world because it was based yes. on an American experience. Whether people subscribe to Africans um, uh, coming, coming from Africa or, or African-Americans being descendants of Africans or they subscribe to we've always been here, this thing happens told incorrectly. Whatever version of this atrocity that you subscribe to, the one thing that is extremely consistent is that the blues is the most American response to an, an American crime. I right? agree. Yeah. Um, and American possibilities. I mean, that was the interesting thing. It's like the crime is there and we can't ignore that. And I and, and that's where I, I, I'm I'm preaching to the white blues fans who might want to say no, you don't lose when you acknowledge that you, you gain a much deeper understanding. But then you know it's also about the celebration, the 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 blues ethos. I talk a lot about that. How my mentor Sterling McGee 
would sort of make fun of the fact that he'd had why he said, I've lost so many wives. I've had so many wives die on me. I was thinking of opening a funeral parlor. And it's like, that's a harsh thing to joke about. Why would you do that? But then that's one of the ways blues people got through is by just confronting it, mocking it, you know, enlarging it. Um, so I want to, I'm going to challenge your, your viewers to, to, to ask themselves the same question. I'm going to try to do the same with myself ask the same question that I asked you, which is, if we're all in this together, in some ways, if we could imagine that we are, let's, let's try to figure where would it, what would be a, an equitable, does it have to be a zero-sum game? See, I don't want to believe that it does. I want to believe that, that you and I, as cultural custodians and as musicians, have dreams that can, uh, potentially align in constructive ways. And that if we don't look for that and ask those questions, we'll never get there it'll you know no i agree and and i think i could speak for the audience who 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 is extremely intelligent we all identify and agree especially i can speak for me on this that we are all in it together i think the issue always boils down to the the omission or negating of a a, a particular voice when it goes against a particular agenda. It, it, and I think that's the only, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think what, what yeah. happens is in the interim of, or the process of dealing with these things, it, it, it there's a, there's distractions based on uh, personal griefs that, 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 are triggered in these conversations. You know, is like, like for an example, if we want to speak, we speak about reparations, and then there's a, there was a white blues guy who's a good guy, but that that conversation really um, um, triggers something in him because he's you know I'm poor, my family's been poor, so what you, you know, and what what happens is when we get into these um, sub conversations. It, it takes away from number one what the 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 foundation we're discussing is about, and number two, uh, I think again is personalized because half the time, if not all the time, myself or any person in my space that is black that is ha that are having this discussion or, or or sharing or trying to put in a proper context it's never a a a malicious intent a divisive intent nor is it attacking white any white person or white musician it is just presenting the information so you can have an understanding not yeah. you cuz i know you know i mean in general yeah but yeah. what happens is i believe when people receive these transmissions, it triggers something that that makes them believe we're 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 saying no white person could play the blues and all these all these things and you know that's ridiculous, you know at best. Well, I do think so. It triggers that in some people. I do, yeah, yeah. So so now as we as as we wrap, and I yeah. want you all to 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 really take heed to the question that that that. Dr. Gusso uh, presented, you know, and, and, and chime in wherever, you know, drop it in this link, you know, in, in, in the post, in the feed, 
wherever, because this is something we're at the end of the day, we're trying to, to, to come, we want to culminate with the understanding and, and some sort of, 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 uh, unity, but respecting everyone's space. Um, outside of Amazon, please tell them where they could find your book, your next performances or anything you're working on, or your harmonica lessons, right? That's very important. The book, the book is published by, um, and, and again, it's uh, Who's Blues Facing Up to Race and the Future of the Music. It's published by um, University of North Carolina Press, so you can find it on their website. It's easy to just go Who's Blues, Gusso, UNC Press, if you want to buy it direct from them. But Amazon is great, too, if, but you might not be a fan of Amazon, some people. Um, Barnes & Noble has it. So I think the sort of basic places that you might buy books, you can find it there. Um, I have a website, the YouTube channel, two YouTube channels. You can just go to YouTube and put in Gusso Harmonica Channel, and they'll both come up, I think. Um, a lot of sort of free harmonica lessons. Um, I, got, I got into trouble lately because my kid's been playing. I've got a 14-year-old who plays trumpet and band. He's a really great musician, and he's playing a song called The Hay Song. And I thought, that would be fun. Let me teach people how to do that on harmonica. turns out it's by Gary Glitter, <laughs> a U.K., a UK guy who uh, was apparently a horrible, like abuser of children. And so I got all this grief from people in England just goes to show you try to, you step in it when you don't expect it. So I I had to put a video that said apology and teaching (laughs) moment. That's what I did. Um, But anyway, modern blues harmonica, I have a website uh, there. So we do not. And one other thing is I, I wish I had the CD to hold up, but my, my group now with Sterling McGee's Mr. Satan's nephew, Rod Patterson's called Sir Rod and the blues doctors. Cause I had a duo for eight years called the blues doctors. He's Sir Rod when he does his anti-bullying stuff in the Atlanta public schools. And, and so you can find, just go Sir Rod blues doctors and you'll be able to find our CD, which is called come together, um, which is a song. I wrote the musical background. I sent it to him and said, you think you could write some lyrics? He wrote lyrics in an hour and a half. We recorded it the next day and it's the lead song on the album. So can we do it? I think we can, but we have to say if the war, if we, if the, if what will the world, if we can get it right, what would things look like? That's the question I I want people to ask. You know, blues people, we, we sometimes like to articulate the problems. But, you know, it's occasionally important to just dream that dream. What would it look like? And that's in the blues tradition, too. As you know, the, the, the dream blues. You know, I dreamed. Big Bill Brunzi has one of those, I think. You know, you dream that you're at the White House. Those kind of dreams. So, anyway. Right. Which, which I like that kind of talk because it's solution-oriented. <laughs> and if you, don't ever, if you don't ever engage those, like, what, if you could get it right, what would it look like? Just... That sort of vision statement thing is important. I don't do it nearly enough, but but um, anyway, thanks for a great deep conversation. We went a long a long way in a long time. So no, thank you. As usual, it's a pleasure, and 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 you know another great book, and and never a dull conversation with you, sir. True. <laughs> All right, great blues people. Yet again, what an honor discussing. Whose Blues Is It with Dr. Adam Gusso out of Mississippi, who's a phenomenal harp player. Trust me. And um, we will be back at you again. His information will be in the description right below. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that notification button. Keep bluesing. Keep loving. 
Tell your story, own your story. We'll be right back with you. <laughs> 